We have been studying uh, biblical anthropology in the first chapter of the book of Romans as we are starting in this greatest of all doctrinal books in the New Testament. And we're looking at the human condition as God sees it. We're seeing ourselves and our experience from a divine perspective rather than a human one. And it's a perspective completely at odds, completely at odds with the modern academic anthropological understanding of man and certainly at odds with the opinions of most people, just people in the street. God's perspective is contrary to our own because while we see ourselves as progressing and advancing and always improving, God sees human history as a nightmarish descent into folly and sin. And Romans chapter 1 chronicles the devolution of man, his fall away from the truth into lies, his fall from wisdom into foolishness, his descent from virtue into wickedness. And I would um, expect Paul, if he was discussing this subject, if somebody said we're going to talk about the pattern of man's life and where man has come from and where he's going, I would expect Paul to begin with the garden, with man and his creaturely perfections made in God's image and trusted with a divine commission to guard and to keep Eden, a garden which God planted. And then I would expect him to tell of man's fall from grace, his decision to fall into sin, his rebellious desire to be autonomous. That word autonomous is a big word, but it just means a law unto yourself. Auto is self and namas is law, a law to yourself. But Paul doesn't start there. He is going to talk about Adam and all of that later in Romans, but he doesn't start there with this anthropological understanding. He starts with the most important fact every human being needs to know. And he starts with the wrath of God. And if you look at verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Everybody needs to know more than that we had parents that lived in a garden and all that stuff. Everybody needs to know immediately that God's wrath abides or stands over or hangs over all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You know, when I was young growing up in Indiana, many of the public buildings in town had these big, giant, siren speaker things on them. I mean, they were huge, giant things. And I never thought they were very helpful because if you were indoors, you couldn't hear them, but at least not where I live. But if you were outdoors, you could, uh, you could sometimes kind of catch them. They had this strange sound that was sort of somewhere between a, a trumpet blast and uh, an odd musical chord. It was just kind of this loud thing. And it was a warning. And what it was was a warning that tornadoes were on the way. Either one had touched down somewhere nearby or, or conditions were such that they were starting to form in the sky. And uh, if you heard it, you had a pretty good chance um, of, uh, you know, getting to safety or some safe place before they got to you. Something powerful enough was coming to turn your home into rubble. And if you're standing around outside, pick you up and throw you down the street, which you probably don't want to do. Uh, so the whole idea is this warning system. And Paul is being a siren here. He's sounding a warning system. So he starts off with the most important thing you need to know, that a, a tornado of divine wrath is coming. And I'm using tornado in a figurative way. Could be a tornado. But the most important thing people need to know is that God's wrath has been revealed, manifest. That's what he's saying. God has announced his wrath his holy anger. And that holy anger stands against what he says is all 
ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I'm sure he says all ungodliness and unrighteousness because you always run into some character who thinks that his brand of ungodliness and unrighteousness doesn't count. I mean, God is going to overlook his thing. But he, but he excludes all the excuses and all the uh, self-justifications by saying that God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Um, there is no kind of ungodliness and there is no kind of unrighteousness that's okay. That God winks at and says, that's okay. There isn't any kind like that. All of it brings down his wrath. Any attitude of disrespect for God's person, any misuse of his holy name, ignoring him, snubbing him, disregarding his position as the Lord of all things and the maker of all things and the judge of all things, that is godlessness. And every human being is guilty of that regularly. And unrighteousness is simply breaking the rules set by this one who is over all things. That verb in verse 18 is revealed, is present tense. In, in, in a Greek, present tense doesn't mean it's happening now. It means it's going on continuously. That's what that verb form means. So it's, God's wrath always hangs over all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's a continuous reality. God's wrath always abides over ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, there's always somebody that doesn't believe in tornadoes or somehow believes that there are tornadoes he is personally exempt from them. In fact, I have to admit, when we heard the sirens, we used to go outside rather than inside if our parents went around because we actually wanted to see one. I mean, that was kind of exciting, but none of it really came my way. But when, uh, and maybe you can dodge tornadoes, and maybe you can luck out and see one as it destroys your neighbor's house and not yours. But the wrath of God is not like that. It is an absolutely sure thing. It's not invented the wrath of God is not invented by red-faced, sweaty preachers to scare people. God's wrath is a necessary and an entirely fitting and appropriate aspect of his nature. Because if he's infinitely good and pure and holy and just, and if he's all those things, evil simply cannot be tolerated by him. How could it be? The day God tolerates evil, he ceases to be God. He ceases to be good and holy and just and true. God is perfectly holy, unmixed goodness and righteousness, infinite in knowledge, nothing escapes his awareness, infinite in power, nobody escapes his hand. His lordship extends to every place, everywhere. And as we mentioned last week, he does not change. There's no chance of him changing. He's immutable. So he's not going to change his mind. And what's interesting is Paul says, everybody knows it. Everybody knows. Everyone. But they stuff and suppress the truth down because they don't want to deal with such a being as he is. It's too traumatic to realize that infinite justice has targeted you for destruction. That's something we don't really want to have to think about. So what human beings do, Paul says in verse 18, is suppress the truth. Stuff and pack the knowledge down out of mind and out of consciousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, 
Then at the end of verse 20, 20, he says, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. On the day of reckoning, no one will say, you know, but I didn't know. If I had known, nobody will say that. Because all of their suppression and all of their stuffing and all of their running away will all be revealed to them. They'll know all of it. All of their internal mechanisms and tactics to avoid dealing with reality. It'll all be exposed. And it's all willful. So there's no excuse. The reality is, as John's Gospel put it, men love darkness rather than light because, he says, their deeds are evil. So it is that people hate God's goodness and despise his authority and wish so much that he would not be God. They want that so bad that they literally invent their own deities. People are so brazen in this that in our day you even hear people say things as irrational as, well, my God is a God of blah, 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 or, well, my God, my higher power is like this. You mean just your opinion actually creates reality of what God is actually there? You, you think something, you want something to be true, so that's what makes it there? People actually believe that. Not only do they believe that, but they believe that you can do that too, that they can create their own deity and you can create your own deity and it's okay because you know we're all tolerating everybody and now you have to take your brain and step on it a few times to be able to do that but people are willing to do that because it's suppression of the truth truth is not an issue in modern culture personal man-made deities designed just for me nothing new about that verse 21 even though they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So we see God's perspective here on mankind. Mankind is ungrateful, thinks in an empty way, is foolish, has a darkened heart, gladly trading God the Creator for silly, made-up idols, twisted philosophies, and imaginary deities. Well, what is God's response to humanity in doing that? What does perfection, infinite perfection, do with such willful, stubborn, insolence and corruption in his universe. Well, I think he has several options. The most reasonable of which, to my mind, would be to make the sun explode. I mean, if I was God, that's what I would do. Luckily, I'm not. There's a lot of reasons why we're lucky that I'm not God. But that's one of them. Because I, I you know, just uh, one, one supernova out of many, and this earth is gone, right? I mean, we can start all over, new people, whatever. Forget, forget planet Earth. A quick end, and then on to something new. He could do that. But that is not his choice. And so that makes you really wonder, why is he choosing the way he's choosing? What is it? What's he up to? God's choice is to let people go and do their own thing. At least for a time. Now, this is an aspect of God's wrath. 
one aspect of it. It's not the end story. It's the current aspect of it. God's wrath is to give people over to their own desires. If you want to outline verses 18 through verse 32, the last half of Romans chapter 1, you could do it with basically a, a three-point deal. Verse 18, you could say the wrath of God is revealed. It explains the fact of it, the reality of it. Verse 19 through 23, you could say the wrath of God deserves, explaining why man deserves God's wrath, the why of it, however, uh, without excuse. And if you look at 24 through 32, which we're going to start on today, you could talk about the wrath of God inflicted or implemented, explaining how God's wrath is manifested today. Now, if you examine verses 24 through 32 carefully, you're going to notice a very precise phrase that's used in exactly the same way three times. And we sang it this morning, or we heard it sung. Verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And the words are these. God gave them over. God gave them over. Verse 24 starts with the word, therefore which connects this giving over to what precedes. Something goes on, therefore he gives over. And the thing that it connects to is that willful suppression of the truth, the failure to honor God with the honor that he is due, the ingratitude and the idolatry, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for that which is corruptible and temporary and powerless. And because of that staggering level of wickedness that men should trade the true God for idols or their own imagination, dishonoring the God on whom they depend for everything, because of that, God gave them over, it says. To what does God give them? Well, he mentions three different things. They're sort of tied together, but they're all different words. Verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. What you see as you go through life are abundant expressions of what God has given men over to. You encounter it every day. Go to the supermarket and look at the magazine covers. Impurity, degraded passions, depraved minds. That's what you see except maybe on Family Circle or something. But most of the magazines. Gross moral failure, corruption, and perversion. And as you read these nine verses in the book of Romans, 24 through 32, it has a strangely modern ring to it. And there's a reason for that. It sounds modern because man's fundamental nature does not change. We grow and we develop in ideas and theories and worldviews, but we ourselves have not advanced one bit. All the sins listed in these verses 2,000 years ago as expressions of a depraved mind are still around and in abundance. Indeed, even more so, for we have moved from a basically Christian culture to a culture hostile to the living God. So we've actually had the benefit, at least, of having a Christian understanding of things and a witness, and now we're actually rebelling against that. These pagans didn't have that. So our guilt is even more exemplified. Notice the word for, which begins verse 25. For, this verse is explaining why God gave people over. 
Now watch the flow of the argument. Start in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them for what? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie or the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than, than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen, he says. So Paul's first emphasis on sin is focused on this uh, sexual immorality. In fact, the first two times Paul says God gave them over, he uses terms for sexual sin. Which I think is very interesting. Why choose that above all things? Because he's a prude. No, I don't think that's why. Idolatry and sexual immorality are always bound together somehow. It's a very curious fact of human nature. God gave them over, verse 24, in the lusts or desires of their hearts to impurity. That word impurity, akatharsion. Catherine, my daughter Catherine's name means pure. It comes from a Greek word that means pure, katharos. Akatharos is the exact opposite, unclean or impure. Katharos means pure, thus akatharos is impure. He goes on, he says, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Lust impurity, dishonor. Sounds like Paul's been watching MTV again or, or, or network television or something. Th these are the rules of our culture. The sacred realities, the highest and strongest desires of the heart are impurity and bodily dishonors. That's what our culture worships. It's the same in the Roman world. If somebody came from another planet and just observe popular culture, watch television and movies and listen to the radio and listen to music, went to popular concerts, what would they say we worship? Sensuality, impurity. Those are the things that are celebrated in every way, delighted in, brought into everything. In fact, now it's even being brought into children's fair and we're accepting it because, well, that's what's out there. And we are like this because in simple terms, we, we don't, as a human race, look up. We look down. And that's what he's talking about. We've accepted what Paul calls, verse 25, the lie. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And by taking our eyes and devotion off of the infinitely pure, holy, and righteous God that exists and looking down and seeing what men are like, seeing ourselves by taking our eyes off of him as he would want us to be, as creatures of great dignity and ability and moral power. Instead, we look down and we see ourselves as animals, as, as all that there is. And so what animals do is what we do, as, as nature, doing what comes naturally, we say. We worship and serve the creature. So we act in accordance with what we worship in a creaturely manner. Now, in discussing all this and what is to come, you have to think, Man's nature doesn't change, so what Paul is dealing with in terms of human nature is exactly the same as what we're dealing with today. However, when you read the New Testament, it was written in a certain place at a certain time to a certain culture. So there's manifestations of this stuff that Paul is dealing with that might have some variations in terms of what we're dealing with. You don't find too many, you do find some, because I can think of one right away near, nearby, but you don't find too many pagan temples around where you can go in and like worship an idol and put stuff down. But there are, I mean, that still goes on in the world, but not too much in Southern California. Some. I used to go to a church that was right down the street from a big golden statue and monks doing things and all kinds of stuff. But there is an ancient world and a modern world. Cultures differ somewhat. Paul's world 
and his experience would have been slightly different. But what is constant is human nature, which we cannot change. We can rationalize it, but we cannot change it. We abandon God. Here's what's common. We abandon God. God gives us over to impurity and lust, and we decide that such immoralities and perversions are normal and healthy. And soon we cannot conceive of noble and virtuous human life. We actually forget that human beings ever lived that way. There's so many examples of this. You know, I was amazed. I, I think I mentioned it before. They had a, a, a show about George Washington on um, A&E channel, I think it was, called The Crossing. It was about the crossing of the, you know, the river and attacking the British. And I thought, well, that would be a great show for my, my son to see, or myself, you know. I mean, because I knew George Washington was a man of tremendous virtue. And um, so the show comes on, and there's all this bad words start popping up and popping up. So we shut it off. Well, I catch it later after the kids are in bed because I want to see how they corrupted George. They make George Washington the most profane, foul-mouthed um, person, you know, like a typical person. Now, I know because I was a history major and I read a lot about the American Revolution and George Washington's life. George Washington actually wrote to his men orders, pleading with them not to use bad words and never to, to use God's name in vain because he did not want to bring God's wrath upon his army. I mean, he said, this is a general of an army saying, it hurts my feelings to hear God's name invoked in a, in a bad way like that. And here's his program, completely without any historical basis, making him a casually profane person. That is so twisted. You see, we cannot conceive anymore of human beings that are virtuous. It's impossible. So history is constantly being rewritten that's why, it, that's why you just cannot watch movies and television stuff to get history because it's always perverted, always twisted. It's like William Wallace in that movie Braveheart committing adultery as an act of revenge, which never happened. It never happened. They just make it up. And that was a Christian that supposedly wrote that movie, supposedly. He's the guy that said, I never let facts get in the way of truth. Suppression. <laughs> I never let facts get in the way of truth. That's Hollywood. But they have to twist and pervert and corrupt everything that's good. So all these people that would see that show would believe that that's the way George Washington spoke or that's the way William Wallace behaved or whatever. It's constant. It's a constant. It's deliberate, too. It's deliberate. Anyway, we abandon God. God gets us over to impurity. We say impurity is normal. And we forget. There's this profound link, a direct link, between idolatry and impurity. They're amazingly bound together, and that's why Paul mentions these sins first. Let's step back into Paul's world just for a moment. Paul was writing Romans, you may remember what city he was writing from? Corinth. Corinth was a famous town. It had actually gone out of existence, but the Romans, a little bit before the Christian era, repopulated it and started it over again. The most magnificent building in Corinth, or one of them, sat way up on a hill called the Acre Corinth, and it was a temple. It was a temple to Aphrodite. And the ancient writers say that before the Roman era, there were a thousand temple prostitutes who would come down and ply their trades in the streets of Corinth. Religion and sex totally blended together. And that was very common in pagan culture. But I mean, that, that's where he's writing from. That's the world he's inhabiting as a godly man. And of course, they would have been all around him. So he's seeing that, he's feeling the weight of the grievous tragedy of all that. One of the things most abhorrent to a Jew, as Paul would be, 
because the Jews believed in a pretty rigorous sexual morality. The most disgusting thing to Jews about Gentiles was their sexual immorality. It wasn't the pork. That was one thing. The food. But it was their, their fornication that was so common in Gentile culture. That's one reason Jews would not enter a Gentile house. And if you've seen the paintings on the walls of Pompeii, you'll know why they wouldn't want to enter a Roman's house. Because they put pornography on their walls. They, they, they couldn't deal with that. It was too horrific. Living in a Gentile-dominated world was very painful for them, for a Jew. And of course, for a Christian, it's even more so. Because a Christian has a much more spiritually directed appreciation for purity, katharas, because of Jesus, his life, and his teachings. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the katharas in heart, the katharoi, the pure. The exact opposite of the people Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1. Blessed are the katharoi. Not a katharoi, the impure, the unclean, but the clean in heart. But here in Romans 1, God is giving over the idolaters and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, the exact opposite of Jesus' beatitude. Exact opposite. You see, it saddens a Christian to see this go on this impurity. Well, it used to sadden them. Paul wrote the book of Romans from this very immoral town. With Aphrodite's temple sitting up there, the goddess of erotic passion, the temple served by priestess prostitutes. The moral disease in Corinth was rampant, and we know from archaeology, and I won't tell you why we know, but we know from archaeology that ancient Corinthians sought healing from the gods for these venereal diseases that were rampant in their town so they could carry on more immoralities. It's amazing, isn't it? That's why Paul calls it the lie. And it's all around him as he writes, just as it's all around us in our culture. Now, our idolatry in our culture, in our time, is no less offensive to God, it's no less foolish, it's no less destructive, and it's no less sensually based. It's the same thing. You just don't have big temples to that, necessarily. Romans 1.25 just as accurately describes the modern world as it did the ancient world of Paul's day. He wrote to a pre-Christian society, we speak and live in a post-Christian society. And you know what? They look a lot the same. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And as the ancients turned away from God... He gave them over to be ruled by their own lusts. So it is in our day. God has given men over to their own lusts because we have turned away from him. And idolatry breeds immorality and purity. And human dishonor and corruption is just one aspect of his divine wrath. That men that dishonor their bodies in such a way is an aspect of God's divine wrath. He gives us over to that. Brokenness, disease, emptiness, hard-heartedness, the fruits of immorality. And we're just swimming in it as a people all the time. That is the legacy of idolatry. There's a very interesting line in the ancient book, The Wisdom of Solomon. It's not a Bible book. It's one of those apocryphal books that was written before the New Testament era, a Jewish writing. And it says, very interesting quote, For the idea of making idols was the beginning of fornication, and their invention was the corruption of life. That's a really interesting thing. There again, you see the close tie 
between sexual immorality and idolatry. To take our eyes off heaven, to turn away from God, to look to earth, to the flesh as the highest reality worthy of devotion is an inevitable decline into sensuality and uncleanness and the dishonor of the body. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It happens in every culture. Indeed, at some point, and I think we are there as a culture, sensuality itself becomes the idol. You might remember Paul's words in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He says to Christians, he says, Therefore, consider yourselves, the, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things he says, that the wrath of God will come. Now, of course, immorality, impurity, and evil desires are such a common form of idolatry in our day, as in our day, that people flat out refuse to believe that God's wrath would ever come on such behavior, because we're just doing what comes naturally, right? We just won't believe that he could possibly see it as a great offense to him and to his moral order. And even many professing Christians don't believe that and relish in the same sins. And if they don't indulge themselves in it for whatever reason, maybe because of disease involved, they entertain themselves with it. We'll talk more about that when we get to verse 32. You know, external conformity to purity is not what God wants. I mean, that's a good thing, but that's not what he mainly wants. You know, it's not a virtue to fear disease or pregnancy. Well, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to get a disease. That's not a virtue. That's just staying away from something that's deadly. Blessed are the pure in heart. That's a virtue. I get a little distressed when I hear Christian young people being told to stay pure because of disease and pregnancy and all these things. I mean, all that's true. But that's not the reason. That's not the reason to be pure. We should be pure inside because Christ is pure and we should seek to be like him. Moral innocence and purity of heart should be the highest possible goal for the human heart, to be like Jesus, to love everyone with pure love, to never have a greedy desire to possess or to use or to degrade someone else for your own personal pleasure. Jesus never had that. Even though they make a movie where he has that, that's his last temptation, sensuality. He didn't have that. His love was perfect. Perfect. That was a minor temptation to him because they just sloughed it off. The devil didn't come to him bringing girls and stuff because his love was so perfect that he didn't have that problem. He didn't. Some Christian hearts are so steeped in immoral entertainment and amusements that they have no conception of what a pure heart is because Hollywood and the culture has fixed us right in where it wants us to be to believe that that really never happened, that there never were people like that. So even to us in our time, it's a mystery when people talk about purity because, well, I don't, I don't, what is that? That's not the world I live in. That's not the real world. The world's ways are so routine that nothing shocks us or offends us because calluses have grown over the heart because of the wickedness that we constantly expose ourselves to. So the heart can't feel anything like purity. It's just a weird idea 
that's out there because we're so hardened to it. It's sad, but it's an, an, an inevitable consequence of an idolatrous culture, and especially a Christian compromising with an idolatrous culture. Well, a final thought, if I may. Earlier we considered God's options in dealing with such a depraved humanity. How's he gonna deal with it? Could make the sun go supernova, but he doesn't. He chooses to give people over in the lust of their heart to impurity. Now, he certainly had the option of destroying the world, putting it in, so why didn't he? Why give men over to impurity, to degrading passions, to a depraved mind? Why let it go on and go on for generation after generation after generation? I believe it's because there's mercy in his wrath. There's no mercy in a supernova. <laughs> it's over. There is actually mercy in giving people over to their own lusts. And the truth is, and God is so good at this, God can bring good out of the worst evils. He knows how to do that. He doesn't do evil, but he can use evil. He can bend it and shape it and point it in a direction for his own purposes. So to give over human life to their own depravity, its own depravity, is a mercy. Because I have seen God do this many times, even in my own life, order evil to create a better good. I've seen him do that. So for one thing... The reason he gives people over rather than destroy them is, is a moral example. Whatever beings there are, and I'm talking about maybe angels rather than like people from outer space or something, it's, it's a great lesson. Because, you know, angels fall too. At least we know they did once. So what's the object lesson for whatever creatures there are in the universe that God has made? Look at planet Earth. Here's what happens when you turn away from God. Because we want to be autonomous, a law unto ourselves. Here what ha here's what happens when you do that. We'll let people be their own deities, go their own way, and look what happens. Look what they produce. Just watch. So there's this continuous object lesson, and it only gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And more twisted and more perverted, and more, more things are accepted. In idolatry, many good things perish from the world. And there's a great lesson in that. So there's no good in seeking freedom from God, only a new kind of slavery. That's his message. Second, by letting us live on, even handing us over to our own depravity, God can work redemption. And by his grace, and by his grace alone, some people will long for something better. Some people will see in some way the fruit of wickedness and want to find a way back to him. Because after indulging and indulging and indulging and being ripped apart from the inside out by it and realizing how empty and fruitless it is, then when Jesus comes and enters into human life and men can see what kind of life we were meant to live and the kind of people we were meant to be, some people, by God's grace, will be awakened to the reality of better things and want it. And then when the gospel is proclaimed and that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that Jesus was bearing the wrath of God himself on the cross, the very wrath that hangs over us was taken upon him, then by his grace we can receive forgiveness and be cleansed, what a great word, and find reconciliation. And our hard hearts can be renewed and softened and become tender to holiness and purity. In short, we can be reborn 
of the Spirit. And all things can be made new, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says. So yeah, He gave us up to our own way. And for some people, that will be an eternal condition. We don't want you, and we'll spend forever without you. Because that's the way we want it. But for others, there is salvation in all that muck and new life available. And it's so wonderful because God is so wonderful. And you know, it's interesting at the end of verse 25, God can't resist. Paul can't resist just praising God. He talks about the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He just kind of bursts forth into a doxology as he considers the glory of God in judgment and in salvation. Because God is blessed forever. Well, we're out of time. Next week we're going to look at um, verses 26 and 27 and parents may wish to consider the subject matter in advance as regards the little ones. We're not going to be super explicit, but we are going to deal with the subject that's there. You might want to read through that and um, make decisions based on that. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the word, the clarity of the word, the reality of the gospel as it stands as a saving reality from all that we have done to ourselves, all the depravity of humanity, redeemable because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf. New birth is available. We thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen.